Well, joy is your compass, and Jesus is your destination. All right, all right. Um, well, let's pray. Yeah, Father, we surrender this time to you, God, and I pray, Father, that our, our ears would be open to hear your word, God, and that our spirits would be open to receive it and to digest it. We lift you up today, Father. We love you and we bless you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen? Amen, amen. amen. All right. Well, when my kids were younger, um, Braxton was, I think, three. Marley was about five. Uh, we lived in, in uh, Dayton, Ohio. And I had a day, it was, uh, I had a daddy day, you know. I was on daddy duty. And so I was trying to figure out something to do with them. And they had this heritage festival that went on downtown Dayton. And I would take them, I decided just to take them down there. So I packed up the car, threw the wagon in the car, and, uh, and we headed out to go downtown. And we got down there and, uh, you know, I got everybody out, threw, threw the backpack on, threw them in the wagon, and off we went. Got about halfway there, and Marley's five years old. She was like, you know, I'm a big girl, I want to walk. So, okay, cool. So I pulled her out, and we continued on. And we finally got to the Heritage Festival, and we got under the main tent. And where the main tent was, there was just hundreds of people, man. And, and you know, they had a, a live band going, and, and there's tables all over the place, and food. And, you know, so we walked, and we got our spot. And I told Marley, I leaned down, and I said, hey, baby, make sure you stay right here with me because there's a lot of people here, and I don't want you to get lost, okay? And she said, okay. And I said, Braxton. Braxton. Braxton was gone. He wasn't in the, in the wagon anymore. My three-year-old son was gone. And so I started to just like scan the bottom, you know, just look and scan the floor because he's a little kid. So I, I'm hoping that I can, I can see him just walking around and I don't see him. And I'm, I'm looking up high in case anybody is carrying my son and, and I don't see him. And, and, and I'm, I mean, I'm in panic mode and I started to scan the crowd one more time and I locked eyes with this older lady who was sitting over at a table looking at me like this. I was like, what do you mean? Like, this ain't, this ain't a moment. Like, you know something that I don't know, and I need to know what you know. So what do you know? And so she just, she just did this right here. And I followed her finger across the tent, and there was my three-year-old son on the dance floor. <laughs> just getting it, getting it. And so I grabbed, I grabbed Marley, and we ran over to him, and I, I just turned him around with a big old smile, and I picked him up, and I just kissed him all over his face, you know? And I set him down, and, and, and then we just started dancing. I didn't know what else to do, you know? We just started to dance. <laughs> he knew that I, was, that I was happy to see him. And so that's my question to you today is, do you think God's happy to see you? Like, what do you, what do you think God thinks when he sees you? Like, do you think that he just thinks of all the dumb stuff that you've done in the past? 
Do you, do you think that he's just looking at your past, or do you think that he's excited about your future? Yeah. Like, how you answer those questions will have a huge impact on how you see God. And, and how, you, how you see God will have a huge impact on how you come to God. Right? How you come to him. Like, if you see him as just this mean, harsh, dispassionate God, then most likely you're just going to face him as this hopeless failure when you come to him. But if you, if you see him as a loving father, well, that changes everything. That changes the way that you come to him. It changes the way that you see him. So you can either run to God or you can run from God. But, but how you see him has a lot to do with that response. Whether or not you see yourself as an orphan or whether you see yourself as a, as a son or a daughter. And so I feel like God wants you to know tonight that no matter what you've done, how far off you run, what dance floor you wander off on, that uh, you're still his child. You're still his child. Our text is, um, is going to be found in Luke 15, but before we go there, let's just look at the context and Jesus is shown sitting with tax collectors and, and um, uh, sinners because they were just interested in hearing him teach about the kingdom of God. And Jesus didn't discriminate. Like he, he was creating a community of people that would follow him and learn this new way of living, and everybody was welcome. So the religious leaders see this, and they start criticizing Jesus's. Uh, company. They said, if he is the Messiah, why is he sitting with all these lowlifes? Why is he sitting with all these sinners? You know, funny acting we can get sometimes, depending on the hour of the day, right? Whether or not we saved or we sinners. And that's after we started going to church, y'all. <laughs> so when Jesus hears this, he lays into these religious leaders, but, but they don't get it. And so he tells them three parables, and one goes like this, in Luke 15, 11 through 24. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided, them, divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in a want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he went, and I'm sorry, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and 
He came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger, on his hand and, and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. We've all heard this parable before. This is the, pro the parable of the prodigal son. And most people misunderstand this parable. I always did. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son is less about the prodigal son and more about the love of the father as our lives should be less about us and more about Jesus. We pay most attention to him because he's the character that we most relate to. Now, I believe that the prodigal son, that in this parable, I believe that he was a believer because he was still a son. Like Braxton was lost momentarily, but he's still my son. I didn't, I didn't disown the three-year-old sinner for running off onto the dance floor. Still my son. I also believe that at any time, any one of us can fall into prodigal living. Get lost on the dance floor. It don't matter who you are. You can be a greeter. You can be an usher. You can be a kids church volunteer worker. You can be a a worship leader, you can be the pastor. Any one of us can get lost in prodigal living. Prodigal. What does it mean to be a prodigal? Because the parable never even calls him a prodigal son. Like we just read it. It never calls him a prodigal son. In verse 13, it says that he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Prodigal. The word prodigal in the Greek means, and I looked it up because I want you guys to understand it more. So the word prodigal in the Greek means dissolute. Dissolute. Make more sense to you? Good, because it didn't to me either. <laughs> you ever done that, looked up a word, and you get more confused by the definition of the word? You got to go look that word up, make you question your U.S. citizenship. <laughs> dissolute. The word dissolute means lacking restraint. Lacking restraint. It says, especially marked by indulgence in things such as drink and promiscuous sex, which we think that this was what the prodigal son got lost in. You ever lacked restraint in your life? Yeah. You know, lack to control yourself? Thank you, because I, I, I actually said this last time, and I got a bunch of people looking all self-righteous at me, and I was like, <laughs> nobody, huh? It's just me. <laughs> There's areas in our lives that, that we have or we still do lack restraint. 
We all lack restraint in some area of our lives. It's just a tough area for us, right? I was dropping my kids off at school one day, and um, I dropped Braxton off, and then I dropped Marley off. And when I pulled out of the parking lot, there was on the right-hand side, there were parked cars on the road. And then on the left-hand side, there were the cars that were trying to get back into the, uh, the, the driveway, the, the parking lot, to drop off more kids. And I was driving down the middle lane, and it was like raining. It was really dark out. And from out of nowhere, this lady just came walking out from between the cars right in front of my car. And I slammed on my brakes. And she did this. Now, now, at that point, I had two choices. I could have turned up elevation worship music and praised Jesus. Or do what I did. <laughs> I pulled up to her and I rolled down my window. I said, hey! I was ignorant what you just did. And then she, like, she came back with something. Like, she was just like, ah! And then I was like, ah! And it all just came out. And it's like, she freaked out and she jumped in the car. I scared myself. So I, like, rolled up the window and I took off. I'm like, what in the world? Why would you do that? What in the world? I lacked restraint. I lacked restraint in that moment. I go home and I tell my wife these things, and she's like, how'd, how'd that work out for you, Pastor Marlon? <laughs> That's just a silly example. But a lot of us have dealt with more serious issues in prodigal living. With alcohol, with drugs, with pornography, with gambling, with smoking. And I believe that this is truly, this is the believer's battle. This is the believer's battle. The reason we have this battle is because we're made up of three parts. We're made up of our body, our soul, and our spirit. God created our spirit to relate to him. He created our bodies to relate to his creation. Our souls he created to relate to him and his creation. Our souls are our mind, our will, and our emotions. The problem is when Adam and Eve sinned, their spirits died. They didn't die. Their spirits died. And this is what we inherited from them. Ephesians 2.5 says that before we accepted Christ, we were dead. Our spirits don't come alive until we accept Jesus. Pastor Michelle a couple weeks called this our default setting. So for years, in my case, 41 years, I learned to relate to God only through my soul. Because my spirit hadn't come alive yet. So in other words, for, for 41 years, for myself, I related to God through what I may have understood about him or what I like, thought about him and how I felt about the situation. We learn to live based on our thoughts and our, our feelings, our desires. 
until we give our lives to Jesus. It's because we live all those years allowing our souls to run the show when God didn't intend for it to be that way. Right? He intended for us to, to live a life where our spirits are in charge. Because our spirits are connected to them. Our spirits, they'll stay home. Apart from that, apart from the Father, we have this deep desire that motivates a life of sin. Such is the case with the prodigal son. So let's just walk through some of the texts and, and look at how we can eliminate prodigality in our lives. Luke 15, 11 through 12 says, Then he said, A certain man had uh, two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. This request by the son was a declaration of independence from the father. And this is where all of our sin begins. When we decide that, that we can live apart from God, when we can do it ourselves. God gave us one of the most dangerous things on the planet, this equivalent to what he has, and it's our own free will. We can use our own free will for him or against him. What we don't realize is that when we, when we, when we use it against him, we're actually using it against ourselves. Because we're the ones that needed a savior. He don't need no savior. So we have this crazy advantage because he's for us. But when we use our will against him, we sabotage our own lives. The son asked for his inheritance in advance you get an inheritance when the person leaving it to you dies. So essentially what the son is asking him is, hey, dad, let's just pretend that you are dead to me and I'm dead to you. Why don't you just give me my money so I can get out of the way? I can do without the relationship. I wish my son would. I would cue my music. Everybody was kung fu fighting. <laughs> you want your inheritance? Your inheritance is wisdom. Go get a job. But that's how I know I'm not the father and the prodigal son in the story. But this is what our sin looks like when we reject God's plan for our lives to follow our own plan. We ask him to bless me, but I'd rather take the blessings without the relationship. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all born with this innate selfishness, like wanting our way above God's way, because we think we, we know what we need better than he does. But no matter how good we think we are or how righteous we may appear in our own eyes, our good deeds will never be enough. The Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. The world, the world teaches us to compare ourselves with the world. And so we scroll social media to make sure that 
we ain't doing worse than the people we know. But it says that we all fall short. We all fall short of the glory of God, which means that that our lives at Judgment Day won't be measured by Earl from seventh grade that we're keeping track of on Instagram. Because when we look at Earl's life, I think to myself, I'm doing pretty good. But when I face my creator, he he won't look at me and say, Marlon, come on in, man. You did better than Earl. No. No, my life ain't, it's not measured by, by anyone else. Our, our lives on Judgment Day will be measured not by Earl, but by the standard of Jesus Christ. That's our standard. 2 Corinthians I didn't even put this, I didn't give you this scripture. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. It says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, but, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. I can't worry about Earl. Earl ain't my goal. Jesus is my goal. Jesus is my prize. He's my desire. Even though none of us measure up, we all fall short. We have such a loving father, such a gracious dad that he continues to work on us, through us, sustain us, bless us, and extend lavishing love to us. What an amazing God. Verses 13 through 16 talk about how the son travels to a far country where he parties and blows all of his money on dumb stuff. Prodigal living. Not long after that, there's a, there's a famine in the land, so to get by, he has to get a job feeding pigs. And it says he was so hungry, the Bible says he would have gladly filled his stomach with what the pigs ate. He took his inheritance and he ran. He took his inheritance from his father and he ran. The first thing we have to do to eliminate prodigality in our lives is we have to stop running from God. We got to stop running from God. And each one of us has our own stories of of running away from God. We got a million reasons why, why God should be ashamed of us. Like we all know our past, we all know our present, right? We know our weaknesses, we know our sins, we know our mistakes. We, we've all traveled to, to far countries or, or, or journeyed off. And these are actual places or, or places in your heart or your mind that you don't want God to know that you, you've gone. And my passport was full. But nothing surprises God. Nothing at all surprises God. When we're away from the Father, it is easy for us to be deceived by temporary benefits of this world. The devil already knows what we like. 
He's just waiting for us to turn away, to run away from the Father, so he can present all these things that could cause us, cause our prodigality to take front seat. And because our flesh is so weak, we'll go get it. We'll go get it and we'll actually enjoy it. Because the Bible says that there can be pleasure in sin, but only for a moment. Only for a moment. The world always overpromises and underdelivers. It'll never be enough. Do you hear me? The world, it will never be enough. This is why the, the alcoholic can't stop drinking. This is why the smoker can't stop smoking, why the gambler can't stop gambling. I'm talking to myself. The world will never be enough. The son left with his inheritance, supposed to be in a palace and ended up in a pig pen. That's how deceptive the enemy is. To have you in a pig pen lying to yourself, telling yourself that you're just taking a mud bath that you're exfoliating your skin. <laughs> this world will always leave you emptier than it found you. Yeah. The world promises pleasure, it promises success, it promises a good time. But the truth is, is that the world will devour you and leave you for dead because the, the God of this world has only come to kill, steal, and destroy. But, but God has this amazing plan and purpose for our lives, and it's good. But we have to stop running. You have to stop running. We have to stop rejecting his plan to fulfill our own desires. The Bible says that there are a people that will love the creation more than the creator. But look at the heart of Moses in uh, Exodus 33:15, And he says this from the wilderness of Sinai. He says, then, then he said to him, and Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Moses is saying, look, I know, God, that you promised us a land flowing with milk and honey. I know that you promised us this, this great inheritance. But if your presence isn't going into the promise, I don't want it. I'd rather stay right here in this barren wilderness with you than to go in the promised land without you. I pray that we would, we would come to a place in our hearts where we as believers would say, God, I would rather be with you than anywhere in this world without you. Because if I have you, God, I have more than enough. If I have you, Father, I have everything that I need. I'd rather stay right here with you than have anything, any of your blessings without you. We think we need to, to relocate when all we really need is the presence of God right where we stand. He is the ultimate prize. He is the promise. Amen? We end up in situations and ask God why he abandoned us, but, but God doesn't abandon us. We, we move. We move. 
He gave us free will to choose. And sometimes God will let you hit rock bottom because that's the only time that you'll actually look up at the eyes of your creator. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that, that when we were at our lowest, when everybody else turned their back on us, that he was still there. That God was still there, standing there with arms wide open, with mercy and forgiveness in his eyes, ready to receive us right where we are. He's a mighty God. He's a loving God. Yes. says, after the uh, son had spent all he had, he had nothing to show for it, nowhere to go. He had to take this next step, and in our world, this is almost a cuss word. He had to repent. He had to repent. It says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, that just, just, he realized that the party was over. That he didn't have no more poker chips. That he was going to, they was kicking him out of the hotel and he was going to have to thumb a ride home. That the party was just over with. He had to repent. He had to admit his condition and return to the Father. When Jesus began his ministry, one of the first sermons he preached is found in Matthew 4.17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Repent just means to change your mind and change your direction. It's an action. That means we got to get up out of the pig pen and pursue Jesus. We can't stay in the pig pen and pursue Jesus. You're going to either have to choose the pig pen or the palace. You're going to have to choose the junk of this world or you're going to choose Jesus. You're going to pursue one and reject the other. Repentance is offensive. Repentance is offensive because it meets you in your prodigal condition. It meets you right where you are and it confronts your sin. If repentance were a person, I think he would look like this. <laughs> repentance can be offensive. Because he meets you exactly where you are and he lets you know you're a fool. What are you doing walking this way? When you have a loving father that has everything you need and more, but he's not this way. You need to turn yourself around and go in the opposite direction. Repentance can be offensive. We cringe when we, we hear that repent is coming to the party. Because we know repent hangs out with Jesus. Like nobody wants to, nobody wants to find out that repent is coming. But we actually need repent in our friend circle. Because he's the one that will make us swallow our pride and move in the right direction. Move in the rhythm of heaven. 
That's what true repentance looks like. It convicts your heart. It makes you forsake everything else and pick up your cross. So this prodigal son swallows his pride and starts to head back home, and he's rehearsing this apology, probably with with fear and anxiety in his heart. It says in uh, Luke 15, 20, and he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and, and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The whole way there, I'm sure that this prodigal son had no idea. I'm sure he was just scared of what his father was going to, his reaction from the father. And it says his father saw him, ran up to him, and kissed him. The father never gave up on him. He never gave up on him. He never stopped looking for his son. It says the son tried to give his confession, but the father didn't even let him get his words out. Instead, he lavished this undeserving boy with love. He called his servants and he said, he said bring, out, bring out the best robe. Put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. You see, the kiss from the father came before the confession. When, when I called out to God, he just came. He didn't ask for the confession. He just came. He told him to put on the best robe. The robe was given to the favorite child. The robe is, is the righteousness of Christ. He, he, by giving him this robe, he restored his identity. He gave him sandals. Back in those, in those days, slaves were barefoot. They couldn't afford sandals. The, the family had, had sandals on. And he said, he said to him, put sandals on him. This, is, this isn't a slave. This is my son. By putting sandals on him, he restored his dignity. He gave him a ring. The ring was a signet ring on the flat portion of it. It had the family crest on the surface. It was used for personal signatures. He restored his authority by giving him this. Authority to conduct the family's business in the father's name. Today, you have authority to conduct the father's business in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. When we come back to the Father, he restores our identity, our dignity, and our authority. The enemy will try to steal everything, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, he paid the price for the sin that separates us from the Father so that we can come back home. Our Father lavishes his love on us even though we don't deserve it. The Bible says that God loved us while we were sinners, and he never stopped. I don't know where, where you were when the Father came and embraced you. I'm going to close. I don't know where you were when the Father came and embraced you. What I know is that I was a long way off. I was a long way off when he came and, and, and wrapped his arms around me, picked me up and kissed me, and told me that I was his. I didn't look like I thought I was supposed to look. I didn't feel like I thought I was supposed to feel. But he loved me anyway. We, we think we got to get it all together before we come home. 
Like we got we to gotta stop doing certain things before we come back to church or, or, or pray or, or read our Bibles or go to life group. We think we got to clean our act up and, and start acting holy in order to come home. But, but that's not how it works. Only God makes us holy. And he does it through the gift of his grace given through the blood of Jesus. That's what makes a way for us. It's his death, the shedding of blood, and, and his resurrection. See, holiness isn't what God wants from us. It's what God wants for us. It's not our holiness or our idea of righteousness that he's looking for. It's God's holiness in us provided through his grace through Jesus. God is just saying, just come home. Just come home. We'll deal with all that other stuff later. But just come home. When we receive that invitation, it's then that through the help of the Holy Spirit and the power of his word, that we begin this process of becoming the child that he created us to be. That's when we change the way we think, we change the way we, we live, we change the way we act, respond to others. It's not because we're, we're trying to earn something, but it's because of our gratefulness. It's because of our gratitude. It's because of his love and his mercy for us. That's what changes us. The truth is, is we don't change to be accepted by God. He just accepts you. He just accepts you. And when we receive that invitation, he works on all the other changes. He takes care of everything else. That truth will have a huge impact on how you see God, how you come to God, how you see yourself, how you see others. Stand with me. It doesn't matter how far you've run away, what distant country you found yourself in, what dance floor of life you ended up on. God is just saying, come home. Come back home. You're still his child. He wants to lead you. I think the one thing we forget when we when we read that story is because we look at all the things this prodigal son got into you know he went and began this prodigal way of living but I think what we forget was he was just lost my son Braxton didn't he had no idea that he was even lost right he had no idea he was even lost grace of God that brings us home.
just calling on you right now and, and telling you that no matter where you are right now, he wants you to come back home. So if you've, if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, or maybe you just never asked him to forgive you today, I want to do that right now. Every single day, I got to die to the person that I wake up to. It's me. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, let's repeat after me. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Transform me. Make me new. Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me. I promise from this day forward, I will live for you. So Father, forgive us for all the times that we've, we've turned and, and ran, God. Our only desire, Father, is to be in your presence, Jesus. thank you, God, for, for your mercy, for your grace, God, for never leaving us, for always being there, looking out on the horizon, Lord. Our hearts are open to you today, Jesus. I declare today, Father, that our souls would be obedient to our spirits, that our spirits would clearly hear the sound of heaven. We just want to be where you are, Jesus. It's our only desire. We lift you up today. We worship you. We bless you. And we love you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. Come this way before you go that way. We'll have some pastors and altar ministers up here. Remember to live right, love everybody, pray hard. We'll see all of you guys this Sunday. Amen.